This is Nellen Gorin, and I'm talking to Alexandra Sloan, a longtime Nevada City resident, who has written a memoir about life here called Cabin in the Woods, or how a kid from Brooklyn wound up with 20 acres of deer poop. So, Alexandra, you grew up in New York. In fact, you call yourself a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker, and you traveled all over for your, your work with ABC Sports, which is how you met your husband, Robert who also worked for them. And then later he got hired to work for a company in Grass Valley and announced you were moving here. And how did you feel about this move as, as it initially occurred? Well, coming from Brooklyn and then into Manhattan, that was a change. But coming from Manhattan then to Los Angeles was an astounding change. Um, I was so used to being able to come out of my apartment building, walk to the, literally the corner store was the corner store, and I could go there at 2 in the morning. Coming to Los Angeles, we lived in the Santa, what's now the Santa Clarita Valley. It was Canyon Country at the time, which is a section of it. The markets closed at 10 o'clock, and you had to drive everywhere. One of, of course, the big jokes down in Los Angeles is that you drive to your next-door neighbor. So moving up here was mind-blowing. Uh, the first time we went to see the property that we wound up building on, I asked him if we were even still in the state because I had never seen, you know, 100-foot ponderosas lining the roads or uh, it was completely foreign to me. And the fact that, yeah, you really did, not only did you have to drive like you did in Los Angeles, but you may have to drive a lot further away <laughs> to get anything or to go uh, to places. So it was culture shock. Culture shock of losing power for days on end. Uh, the, the whole idea of using a septic tank and a well. I thought, when they were telling me what a septic tank was, I thought it was a joke. And I asked him, I said, are you kidding me? You don't, ha you don't have them that much anymore in Brooklyn or Manhattan or Los Angeles. It was completely foreign concept. And the thought of having to do a Perkin mantle, you know, having to see where the water percolates, this was out of, out of my bailiwick for sure. Um, putting in a well. Uh, the first time we, I walked the property with a PG&E man, and uh, I said, so, I hear we're supposed to put in a, a generator. Do we, we lose power here in this area often? And he just laughed at me. So I said, okay, there's my answer. This was completely out of my realm of knowledge. Had no experience with any of it. And I learned the hard way on some things, and it was certainly, one way or another, it was a learning experience. You know, wildlife, I mean, I looked out my window, and here's this a buck and a doe following him. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was just simply used to crazed squirrels. But here was this Bambi, you know, what I, uh, to me. And I was astounded, flabbergasted. It was like, oh, my God, I could almost reach out and touch them. Did you feel like you were on a nature program like Wild Kingdom? Oh, yes. <laughs> Especially uh, when we lived in Wildwood, and while we were building, we lived there for two years, and I had the 2 o'clock in the afternoon squirrel show. 
as I used to refer to it. I'd have uh, our front deck in this rental house was right under this gorgeous, huge oak tree. And about 2 o'clock every afternoon, down would come the squirrel, run and slide down the deck. I thought at first it had hit his head because he was just laying with all four feet wrapped around the deck, limp, limp. And I thought, how do I give this thing CPR? What do I do? Do I even do that? Do I dare even touch it, you know? And then all of a sudden he'd jump up and do it all again. Even our parrot started in looking for him to, to see if he, she could see him. She enjoyed the show. So you had, a, you had a pet cockatoo. We have an umbrella cockatoo named Angel, who actually is really more spawn of Satan. <laughs> you also um, talk about in your memoir that you've been a dog person your whole life. I have had the love of dogs and dogs loving you and in your life. And so, and I know you had a few, I think two or three dogs since you've been here in the foothills. How did having a dog help you with adjusting to life in the country? It's a companion. It's, you know, as everybody knows who's had one or even a cat, it's unconditional love. Well, cats maybe, you need staff for that. But a dog is unconditional love. They adore you no matter what, most of the time. But it's love. It's love and companion. You can tell them things you would never tell a living soul. And you know your secrets are safe. So what were the, um, what were the nicest things? Uh, you, you talked about some of the surprising things about moving to the country. What were the nicest things that you found about relocating from an urban or suburban area to the country? I really became attached to the wildlife. I felt kind of like a real-life Snow White. You know, I've got the birds. Uh, we we started thinking of all the wildlife as every time a fawn was born or something. Ah, well, grandparents, you know, or watch the quail with, with their little babies that look like walnuts with legs. You know, you can almost not see them. And it's like, ah, we're grandparents again to eat, you know. Um, for me, uh, I became very attached to one fawn, one de uh, doe, excuse me, just showed up one day with a tiny little fawn attached to her, hiding out behind her. And he would live there the rest of his life. And we became very bonded because he knew me from the time and he, I was his human. There was just such a natural thing about it. I never fed them by hand because I didn't want them getting that attached, because if they wandered somewhere else, somebody else might not be like me. But we adored them. We adored watching all the new little ones come in the spring. And just the relationship that you can have between a person and an animal, and you don't think of that offhand. You think of it with dogs and cats, but not necessarily a bear or a coyote or a, a deer. Um, we had a female bear that came with two little cubs. I'd be gardening and weed ripping, and all of a sudden I'd look up, and there she is laying against the thorny bush, keeping me company. I named her Mrs. Yogi. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Hanna-Barbera. We had a, our neighbors told us about a huge cinnamon-colored bear for years, but we never saw him. 
our dog Max all of a sudden started barking and barking and barking like the hound of hell, which is exactly what I wanted from a dog. And I thought, okay, he's got a squirrel out there he sees. Finally, but when it didn't stop, I went and took a look, and sure enough, here is this monstrous cinnamon-colored bear sitting there yawning, scratching his butt, like, okay, I'm up. Which way do I go? And, you know, so he became Yogi. Then we had Mrs. Yogi and the boo-boos. So, and everybody hung out. And I never felt threatened. I kept at a respectful distance, you know. Didn't encroach on them, and they never encroached on me. Uh, you, you write in your memoir also about some encounters with mountain lions, which a lot of people find scarier than bears. Um, some people call bears just black bears, just big dogs. They, mm -hmm. want, they want food and won't bother you. But what about the mountain lions? I, I've been very blessed to have seen them three times. I know a lot of people up here never see them. The first time I saw them, I was out with my lab, Max, who was 100 pounds and could give a good accounting of himself. And it was Christmas. We went out to, for the evening walk, and he starts to growl into the lower pasture. I shine the flashlight, and sure enough, I get four orange orbs looking back. And I'm thinking from two mountains down there, and they're like, we don't have mountains down there. Shine the light again, and here are these two gorgeous mountain lions that get up. Now they're disturbed. It's like, hey, we're just trying to enjoy the moonlight. Go away. And they got up and went into the tree line. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what I've just seen, that's amazing. Another time, I'm out on the drive, and one just comes racing out of nowhere right past me. I wasn't even a thought in their brain. They were after something, and... I was not in the way, and nor was I a threat. Of course, my brain at that moment had to think for a second, oh, dear Lord, that was a mountain lion. And it finally caught up to me, what I had seen. And another time, one just was very nice, sauntering across the road, off to wherever it was going. And it was just beautiful and majestic. Uh, one, I did learn that, and after hearing them, they're call is like a woman screaming. It's very eerie, very, can be very frightening, and you have to pay attention. Is this really somebody calling for help or not? Where we live, you can always tell when one's around because the dogs start to bark in a clockwise manner. So you can always, okay, he's in the 11 o'clock position, now it's in the 2 o'clock position and so forth. But they're just beautiful. And I don't interfere with them, and they don't interfere with me, and we get along just fine. I have not seen one in many years at this point. I wish I would. To have you read some passages from your memoir, because your writing is as delightful as your speaking. Thank you. Most people, especially those raised in cities, do not think of turkeys with incredible personalities. My living room window became my view to a world I had never thought of. Wild turkeys abounded. I was witness one day to a mother turkey making sure all chicks were accounted for and making an attitude adjustment for one. The street outside our house was a major one in the development. A huge hen walked out into the middle of the road. When she was sure traffic on both sides was stopped, she started calling to her children. 
One by one, they came down from a hill and scooted as fast as they could across the street while Mom held traffic. Seven of them were safely across, and she still stood there calling. With deliberate slowness, a male chick came down the hill. As he crossed in front of his mother, he spread his tail feathers, imitating the adult males. Mom wasn't buying it and bent down, biting him on his little butt. There was a small feathered streak going across the street to join his siblings. Mom then joined them and traffic resumed. I smiled and whispered, At a girl! Turkeys are not usually on the warm and fuzzy critter list, but I thought them absolutely magnificent. Their feet are huge and their talons are very long. They look prehistoric. With their large bodies standing on these thin legs, it seemed a magical feat that they didn't topple over. Since we had a prow-shaped house, our roof was A-shaped. The turkeys used this to sunbathe. When the alpha female would give the signal that it was time to get off, they lined up one by one like jets on a flight deck and dived off, sheer poetry in flight. Like turkey vultures, massive wings spread, helping them to land delicately like angels effortlessly. After a rain, we would awaken in the morning to a chorus line on our back deck railing. There in a line would be as many as 15 huge hens lined up facing the sun, spreading their wings and preening themselves. Looking at them, you could almost imagine them breaking into a turkey version of the can-can, holding wings and pushing their drumsticks out in front of them. You always knew when the alpha female came up. She had no problem pushing each off the railing like knocking bowling pins down. Each hen that was pushed off would simply fly back up after the alpha moved on. Eventually, she found the spot that suited her, and preening would resume. So the next uh, excerpt I want you to read um, might be a little uh, upsetting to some listeners, but I think it's a great one about the cycle of life. (laughs) With us city folks came the habit of putting up a bug zapper. Robert hung it over the septic tank electrical box near the side door. It didn't take long before the amphibian wildlife discovered they had a dinner source without any work. As many as seven tree frogs would climb up and sit on the electrical box with another four or more below waiting for a hot and crispy. Some were adventurous and climbed toward the zapper to catch their prey and eat it raw before it could be cooked. The zapper was on a timer and they learned the cycle very quickly. You stood outside and watched. You could see the horde of tree frogs coming from all over to get a good spot for their meal to simply fall into their waiting laps. Yes, yeah, so the wildlife for you and, and for many of us is one of the most wonderful things about living here. And um, right now we're going through one of the less wonderful, if not worse things that you can go through here, which is we're getting smoke from the mosquito fire. And uh, even worse, of course, is to have a fire in your area. And that's something that you went through as well. The Jones Fire. I guess our property also had the 49er fire come up it when that happened. But the Jones Fire was quite devastating to me. Uh, we've, we can see the bombers and so forth going a lot of times to Dobbins and Brownsville and, and areas, but to have them have it hit here at home, that was something else. We, about 115 or so, started lightning and thunder and took the dog out in a hurry because once the thunder really gets going, she won't go out. I don't blame her. And by 5 o'clock, the county red emergency came on, 
and sure enough, I could see flames down the hill from me. Uh, the firefighters were out there already. You could hear the chainsaws going. And as the sun came up, the bombers started flying. The retardants pouring down in a hot pink curtain. By 2 o'clock, the CHP came and sounded their siren and says, get out now. And uh, God, I had already had the car par you know, packed, ready to go. Squeezed the bird in, squeezed the dog in, turned the car around to face to go, and I had to make a look back. And sure enough, here's this plume of dark smoke rising in the air. It eventually came within half a mile of the house. We do uh, what Robert, my husband, says is a scorched earth policy. Every Memorial Day, he gets out with a big John Deere tractor that he rents, and we take everything down to bare dirt. So we had thought, well, if the firefighters needed to, they could make a last-ditch effort at our house. But thank heaven, it took about five days, and we were allowed to go back in. Having been through that um, scare up close, you were very, of course, grateful you didn't lose your house, as some people did. Is there anything you would say to people about the reality of being that close to a fire uh, if people haven't experienced that, any warnings or suggestions or Get insights? prepared. Yeah. You know, do as much of the cleaning up of your property as you can before it gets too late. Once the rains comes and you can burn tree, you know, tree waste and you can burn all this kind of stuff, get it done. Don't, don't wait. Don't think it's never going to happen to you. And also prepare for it. You know, I always keep an evacuation bag and stuff for the animals. Um, but know, you know, look around your house. Have an idea of what. You can't grab everything, obviously. And hopefully you'll have enough time to be able to grab things. But look around. See what you really don't want to live without if you can grab it in a hurry. And some of them you just have to realize you can make, be saying goodbye to. But it's devastating either way. Um, one of the other things you talk about in your memoir is the experience on uh, the effects on a marriage of going through. <laughs> <laughs> you're chuckling already. <laughs> yes, of um, various things: moving to a new place, moving from an urban or suburban area into a, a rural area, such as a semi-rural. And I loved because you had you had a list of things that challenge a marriage, and one is building a house or remodeling a house, which many people have gone through, and. Um, I would add one that you refer to later, which is when your husband says, I want to get a chainsaw. Oh, Lord. Because for me, same thing. Um, when my spouse said, I want to get a chainsaw, it's very scary to me. But men love power tools. And, and a chainsaw around here is a very useful and sometimes necessary um, item. So I wonder if there's anything else stands out to you of like the effect on your marriage or, or things that you went through together in this transition. I look at men sometimes, most men, and I know my husband anyway, certainly, are a combination of Al Bundy and Tim Taylor. They want the power. They want to do, you know, more, more power, more power. But they don't have the knowledge or the execution ability for it. And my husband's definitely a combination between Tim Taylor and Al Bundy. 
Uh, one of the things, yes, uh, but you're right, Bil- remodeling, building a house, wallpapering. These are things that will definitely be, you know, testing uh, your marriage and your relationship. One of the things we started out with when we had to build, and I think it's a very male thing, my husband felt before the uh, back, you know, the uh, bulldozers came in that he had to pull something out of the ground. Just had to. It was marking his territory. So he had a winch, a very powerful winch on the back of his SUV at the time. And he gets a two-inch chain link, uh, length of two-inch chain link, and he's going to tie it around this one-inch diameter pine tree. Little scrub pine tree, just one inch in diameter, and he puts this two-inch truck chain on this thing, hooks it up to the winch, puts the car in four-wheel, and off he goes. Tree didn't budge. His back wheels are up in the air, and they're spinning and spinning and spinning, and this tree is just not going anywhere. Finally, of course, the chain broke. So here is this tiny little tree with this chain around it on the ground. I just looked at him, and I had to turn my back because I was laughing so hard I was going to pee in my pants. Let's listen to another excerpt from your memoir. Field mice were a part of life here. I hoped we had an understanding. They stayed outside, and we would leave them alone. They managed to squeeze into the woodshed, and the outside wood piles next to the shed were filled with them in the winter. You could hear them rustling under the tarps, and I was fine with that. They, like the other animals, were here long before we came. In the summer, the tarps were off, and I cleaned out the wood from their empty nests, food, and such. As the weather started to turn colder, I knew they were going to return. I had this vision of two mice, luggage in hand, the female mouse saying to her spouse, Look, Harold, the maid's been here! As they find their condo and settle in for the winter. What was it like for you moving to a small community, and, and how was it getting involved in the community? What, what did you find about that? I was fortunate in that um, I already knew some people, the wives of his work colleagues, and we all got along very well. So I was more fortunate than some other people who move into a place and they know no one. But it, it's very different. You know, people know who you are. People know who your child is. Or you may think you don't know this person, but they know someone else that you know. So it's, sometimes it's uh, a little strange to me that way because I'm so used to being unknown. Um, so that was a little difficult sometimes to get used to. And on the other hand, it was really nice. There used to be a restaurant called Kirby's Creekside, and we would go there quite often. They would always provide paper and colors, uh, crayons for our son, you know, everything. It was nice. Kirby would come over and he'd talk. When the 97 flooding of Deer Creek happened, we and a lot of other patrons went and helped them scoop out all the muck. And so you made, it became part of community. And that was a wonderful feeling for us. Have you had experiences where you or your near, near neighbors have had to help each other out in an emergency? Oh, yeah. 
uh, we're very, very fortunate. Uh, the folks who live on our hill, there's only like nine families, and we all watch out for each other. We don't have a lot to do with each other normally, but if somebody calls and sends up the smoke signals for help, everybody comes running. And that's a wonderful feeling. When um, our son passed away, it was a very definite coming together and, and supporting us. And there aren't enough words for us to express our thanks for that. Yes, you discuss that in your book, your, your son's um, tragic death. And I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit or there's anything you'd like to impart to people about what you learned going through that. Just always make sure they know you love them. No one is ever guaranteed tomorrow. You know, you get mad and you get upset and you yell. But make sure always that they understand you love them. And they need to understand that regardless of how bad they think their problems are, things will get better. It's usually never as dark as it seems. And talk to your parents, you know. Say, hey, I need help with you. I need, I need to talk to you. Great message. And I'm glad that you felt able to share that with our listeners at KBMR. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to Alexandra Sloan talk about and read some excerpts from her memoir, which is called Cabin in the Woods, or How a Kid from Brooklyn Wound Up with 20 Acres of Deer Poop. Alex, it's been a great pleasure having you in the studio today at KVMR. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you.